boys and girls. Uh, I know it's been a while since we've done one of these things. In fact, our latest episode is in the can but hasn't been released yet. But this is episode number 40 of the Development Hell podcast. Uh, joined, as always, by Ed Finkler um, at the other end from Pawnee, Indiana. Ed, how are you? I know we, for those who are listening on the stream, they're all laughing at us because we forgot to record the intro uh, previously. But um, yeah, it's pretty good. We got about 10 minutes in, yeah. and then I was like, I wasn't recording. So I hit record thinking, uh, oh, well, Chris will certainly have hit record. And so we'll just be able to use his side for the first 10 minutes. And then I typed in the IRC channel, <laughs> I hope you guys are recording the last 10 minutes. And then you typed, oh, crap, with a K. So it's, That's the Canadian spelling. Yeah, right. So, yeah, we forgot to record the first 10 minutes. Uh, thankfully, uh, we only had to stop Sean a couple minutes into telling us something intelligent instead of whatever bullshit we were talking about. But uh, let's get this show on the road. So before we go any further, thanks so much to our awesome sponsors. First of all, um, Engine Yard, purveyors of the fine platform as a service uh, for all. If you like running your stuff in scalable sandboxes, whether it's in uh, Ruby, uh, JavaScript, um, probably Python, because I never go and read the marketing material. And I know... No, no, uh, they don't do Python. No, yeah. so they don't do Python? Okay, fine. And then they do PHP through the f- efforts of the people who used to be at orchestra.io. Um, please check them out um, they are an awesome sponsor they are very forgiving of all the nonsense that we do and also thanks to the Wonder Network uh, consisting of Paul Reinheimer and Will Roberts who are providing who as always very generously donate bandwidth um, so that we can stream this uh, mother live to everybody that hangs out in IRC uh, yeah I'm a name cheater because we didn't know his name before um, so <laughs> so initially uh, I know it's been a while just Ed and I have had a really hard time synchronizing our schedule so we're available at the same time um, you know, life happens. Um, and so I was uh, initially we weren't going to have a guest, but I got a little bit ranty about PHP and deployments um, on Twitter today. And our guest, uh, who has experience uh, doing, uh, and we'll go by its hipster name, Polyglot Deployment, um, he has some experience doing this sort of stuff. So he invited himself on the show, and that meant uh, it was one more person to talk to. So I'm, I'm, I'm always down for that sort of thing. Um, so let's uh, let's introduce our guest. It's Sean Coates. Yay! Hi, Sean. Hey. Hi, Sean. We did all the interesting. Um, so for those who don't know, Sean works with uh, Ed and others at uh, Fictive Kin, and I was joking in the part that we lost. I don't know what you call people that work for Fictive Kin, Fictive Kinners. I joked you could also call them rolling in money, and then they Haha, did the usual self-deprecating thing. Oh, no, we're actually not making a lot of money, but whatever, you bunch of clowns. And, uh, no, actually, like the thing is we are poor. That's That's the thing. We really don't know. Like We actually could use some money. Uh, yes. Well, donations are always welcome. We'll put up a PayPal. <laughs> we'll put up a PayPal link for you at the end of the show. Be awesome. um, and so, as a quick little side, I have actually known Sean. We we're just briefly talking about this. Almost ten years, might be uh, nine, ten years. We met years and years ago when there was a PHP conference in Toronto at the Holiday Inn, right near Yorkdale. And uh, um, I also got to know Sean through his work uh, with um, with Tech PHP Tech, and also on um, PHP Architect Magazine. And so. Uh, so by day, uh, Sean works with Ed and Joelle and Cameron and all those awesome people at uh, Fictive Kin. And by night, he's a ridiculous beer snob and hangs out with his kid and, uh, you know, just being a general all-around much calmer person online than I am. Um, so one of the reasons um, Sean invited himself on was uh, earlier today, I, there's a guy who I follow off and on online, um, 
on Twitter, and he was he retweeted something that somebody had said about um, PHP deployments. And um, for those who've ever listened to one of Rasmus Lerdorf's awesome talks about PHP, you quickly you quickly realize that. Um, Rasmus put a, despite what people think, Rasmus put a ton of thought into PHP and ease of deployability. And, and I, I still find it amazing that it was a tool that was built for a completely, um, completely different time period, um, with shared hosting and all these other things. And that, uh, it continues to evolve and grow today and still is, despite what all the haters say, a really good tool for solving web related problems. And one of the interesting things that PHP does is that due to all that work that Rasmus did with shared holsters and, uh, and Apache and stuff like that, I just said shared holsters, which is very extremely weird. We do share holsters. Um, That's true. That's part of the second. No, what amendment is the one that allows you guys to carry guns? Second amendment. Second, second, second amendment, amendment, right? Um, and an amendment. The American the amendment. The American amendment. Um, and uh, I lost my train of thought. Oh yeah, so deployments. Like in in many cases, you just copy your PHP file up into your document root on Apache, and boom, cue uh, that awesome video of the guy showing uh, your mind exploding. Um, it works. Almost every other programming language other than client-side JavaScript has a ridiculous number of hoops that you need to jump through in order to get it to work. And um, I try to not defend PHP so much anymore as I used to because really I just... I'm at the point where I'm okay with using it and supplementing it with other tools to accomplish other tasks, but this just rubbed me the wrong way. With and then people saying stupid shit like, "Well, uh, Apache is built into System D, and therefore the barrier for deployment barrier for PHP is artificially low." And I have no idea what that actually means. How how you can say that the barrier for deployment is artificially low? Um, and so we were talking about this before when we forgot to record it, and so. Um, We'll let Sean take over because Sean was kind of explaining his thoughts on the deployments of simply because Fictivekin uses a lot of stuff way more um, than just PHP. So um, this just kind of occurred to me while we were talking about it for the second time. Um, but uh, the idea of artificially low actually kind of makes a little bit of sense to me. And I, that's probably not going to go over very well here. Uh-oh. But um, the thing is, it seems like it's way easier to deploy and run a web app than it really is. Um, and that I think that's especially true in PHP, where if you're like trying to put up a website that has some text that changes pretty easily, um, then you can just do that, and you can learn how to do that in a weekend, and, and you can deploy something in a weekend. And that's, that's all well and good for something like that. But then you kind of get into a situation where you might want to have a login. Um, and then once you have that, you have to worry about session management, and then maybe you eventually have to worry about um, scaling. And so security and performance and, and scalability become problems. And I don't agree that that's, that's a badge of honor to have like difficulty in deploying, but I can kind of see where maybe where that person was coming from. I didn't really read a lot of what they were saying, but um, I don't know. There, I think there's, a, there's an actual problem with a little bit um, of PHP, and I think it's a little bit less than it used to be, but um, where it seems easier to do things than it is, and that's why we had all kinds of security problems 10 years ago and why sometimes performance is really awful and that kind of stuff. Does that make sense? That hurts, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> they don't agree with you. That hurts because <laughs> the guests don't agree with me. No, I, I, no, hearing you talk about it, I mean, there is definitely some of that to it. You're right. A very, I think on a very simple level, um, 
PHP is definitely way easier to deploy. But you're right. Once you start getting into things, once you start getting into anything that needs to be centralized, then the level of pain is almost the same, no matter um, what tools, what languages that you're using. Although some make it easier than others. Um, uh, you know, uh, PHP has done, done a lot of interesting stuff lately. Composer being a good one for handling dependencies, and people are still, I think, when it comes to Composer, people are still trying to figure out um, the best way to use that tool. When we're talking about like deployments, I've been, I've always wondered, having never done anything large scale with. Um, with say Ruby, which I know is Sean's least favorite one, or even with Python, uh, maybe you guys can explain to me because uh, I know we had there's there's gems and there's the easy install or pip stuff for Python. So what's generally the best practices for deploying applications in Ruby and Python? Do they are you checking your libraries, your third party dependencies into version control, or are you installing them locally whenever you do the deployment? So. Um we have um, we have PHP, Ruby, Python, and Erlang in production right now. Erlang, um, oh, that's really yeah. baller. That's awesome. <laughs> that's actually awesome. Um, no, it's oh, actually not awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, excuse me. <laughs> oh, I'll just, um, I'm just going to mute my mic while you talk. <laughs> the thing with Erlang, uh, Erlang reminds me of a lot of deploying Java in that kind of everything in the Erlang world um, does everything, and so they kind of try and do things the operating system is supposed to do, which I guess is fine if you kind of have a really good understanding of what those things are are supposed to do. Um, but like simple things that I kind of take for granted elsewhere, like process management and log writing and um, just like the, even the ability to like kill off a process and actually know that it's dead. Um, it, they don't really happen so much in, at least in the way we deploy Erlang, maybe we just do it entirely wrong. Um, we have actually a pretty small app that kind of all our apps depend on a little bit. Um, it's an image image resizer and, and transmogrifier um, application. Um, so it's kind of a pain to deal with it in that way, um, just because you expect to be able to do things from the system and, and um, Erlang does it for you, which is kind of annoying if you don't have a good understanding of how those subsystems work. Um, but uh, so our three real platforms for developing um, real uh, uh, deploying real apps are PHP, uh, Python, and, and we have a Ruby app that we don't actually target for new development. But we have a, um, one of our biggest apps actually is on Ruby. It's uh, called To Do. Um, and so I guess you asked me about like the kind of best practice for those, for those things. Is that where is that where we were going? Yes. Silence. Yeah, I think particularly with package management. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't, um, I don't think we know the best practices for all those things right now. Um, I think I used to know the best practices for PHP, and that's changed a lot in the last couple of years. Um, so we're t- we're we're actually working on a new PHP app right now, um, and we're using Composer for it. And I don't feel like I have a great handle on how to go about deploying that properly, um, mostly because. You can't do what you used to be able to do, and that's just check everything into like a repository and then check it out into the web root and run those things or or run something from with within that checkout as the web root. Um, so I think we have a little bit of learning to do with PHP, especially um, Ruby is a disaster as far as I'm concerned, um, and I think we have a pretty good handle on how uh, how, we do with how, dis- how disastrous it is. 
Um, well, no, no. So I think we have a good handle on how, how we deploy Python, but I also have a yeah, pretty good handle on how, how disastrous Ruby is. Um, and also that, that could just be, like I said, it could just be us not really knowing what we're doing and not having enough expertise in it. Um, but it seems like that happens so often that like every time I turn a corner, there's like a new problem that I don't, I, I kind of got to a point where I was like, you know what, this probably isn't just me. This probably isn't just me failing. Um, Deploying Ruby is just, it was a huge headache for us. Um, we were using, um, uh, RVM to manage like Ruby itself, a version of Ruby and its dependencies and, um, Bundler to kind of package those things together. And Bundler is a little bit like virtual environment for Python, which is also a little bit like, um, like a very small amount like Composer, I guess. And Bundler does all kinds of horrible, horrible things to your shell. Um, or not really your shell so much as like your environment, or maybe I'm just not using it right, but um, it expects a lot of, like it has a lot of assumptions about running an interactive shell and doing all kinds of like environmenty weird stuff um, and not using the right paths for Ruby or, or the library is not kind of stuff. So it's just a headache for us dealing with that stuff. Um, so I don't really want to talk about best practices for Ruby. Um, I think best practices for Ruby, honestly, are have someone else do it unless you have expertise in house. Um, I like that's like, a good solution. Honestly, if I had to do it over again, if we didn't already have a working deployment, I would absolutely advocate for running this thing on Heroku. Like it's just you mean it's not worth it. You mean engineered or engineered? Yes, <laughs> engineered or another similar product. Sure, or subsidiary thereof. <laughs> Um, just because, like I said, it's it's hard. It really it's hard, way harder than I expected. And um, we just don't have um, a joke I make often is that the reason GitHub is able to run a huge Ruby stack and have it work pretty well most of the time is just because they hired all the people that wrote the tools. Um, it sure seems that way sometimes. Kind of make that joke a lot, but I also kind of believe that's true. <laughs> like, um, in order for them to have a, a platform that they know how it works and they can debug effectively, um, it requires a lot of expertise, I think, in in those tools and in Ruby. Um, but on a happier note, um, I think our Python deployments are in pretty good shape. Um, they're not perfect, but they're pretty good. So we manage all of our um, application dependencies through um, through PIP and through virtual environment, um, which is really cool. It's it's a little bit like Composer for the people that are, that are um, familiar with that, except one of the things that virtual environment does really well that Composer does not do at all is manage extensions, unless Composer does that now, which is possible, and I just haven't kept on that. No, it doesn't do extensions yet. Right, so if you have um, a Python library that needs like a C library to be compiled, um, virtual, PIP will do that for you, and virtual environment will handle the um, kind of like quarantining of those things so that they don't interfere with your other apps. So you can oh. run several apps on, on one server. That's interesting. Um, and kind of the reason that works is because of a little bit of the headache you were talking about earlier, where in a PHP environment, especially in a shared environment, you're running an Apache module often, um, or you're running like a PHP FPM backend. And those are generally shared across the system, and they do things like look in your document root and try to parse PHP as the request is made. And they'll do things like caching it through like the caching layer um, and managing the, the communication with your web server. Um, but the reason that doesn't really work for things like extension across across applications in PHP is that um, because of the shared nature of those things, and so you can't just package up like a new library that like maybe this application requires mcrypt and this other one doesn't, unless you're running like different FPMs or something like that. So it's it's kind of a pain in PHP land, but that really often doesn't matter either. So 
Um, so virtual environment kind of lets you do those things and lets you do those things in a lot more sandboxy kind of way and a lot in a, in a way that is a lot more predictable. Um, but kind of one of the problems we ran into with those with with um, compiling code and, and running like different libraries and different servers is that um, if your servers aren't all exactly the same version, um, maybe you have different libraries or when you're doing a deployment, you don't actually really want to be doing a huge compile of like a whole bunch of extensions that your Python application needs to use. So what we do internally is um, we uh, install our virtual environments on kind of testbed machines and then build Debian packages out of those virtual environments and deploy those under production. So it actually goes pretty well now that we figure out how to do that, which is, which is, I would recommend as a very good way to go. At uh, Cinecore, we do a similar thing. We use RPMs because we're running CentOS mm-hmm. on our machines. So we do the same thing. All our releases, they're all, we all build RPMs of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we don't actually do that for our code right now. Um, we probably will at some point. Um, but we definitely do that for all of our dependencies for the code. So like all the virtual environments and the libraries and that kind of stuff. We, um, we run our own compiled version of Ruby. Uh, I think because the version that was in Debian was had a huge security flaw and was behind the times or something like that. Um, and we, we actually run it. Um, we have our own app repository that we run in S3. And so all of our servers just kind of pull that stuff down and, and just do regular like systems level package management with those things, which is really actually pretty great. Awesome, um, awesome sauce. Yeah. yeah, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> cool, well, it's been fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that, yeah, no, that is interesting because that, that is, like, as things get more and more complicated, you I, you know, you find yourself having to do all these weird work workarounds and, and having to think about stuff that you never had to think about before. And, and like I said, I've seen brief glimpses of what, um, deployments are like at Cinecore. I do know um, their RPMs, and we do a lot of our own packages for de- for pretty much everything. All our apps are just built and deployed as RPMs, so um, we get some consistency that way. I guess we don't have to worry about people um, and systems screwing up a deployment, especially uh, manual processes. Uh, Cinecore is really big on automation, so it's I'm pretty sure it's probably push button things. Releases get packaged up, and they build the RPMs, and then. They have everything. Hopefully, they have everything automated. To because we have clusters of servers, so take a take a couple of machines out of the cluster, install them, and then switch things over when the time comes. And it's interesting you're talking about some of the deployment stuff. Um, when I, I was at Sunshine PHP in Miami, and Rasmus did one of the lunchtime. I think he did a lunchtime talk. Um, that was actually really good and showed a side of Rasmus I hadn't seen before in a talk. He talked about some personal things, which was kind of interesting because he's never really talked about stuff like that in the talks that I've seen him do. And he did talk about um, deployment stuff, and they were how at Etsy they fiddling around with um, Apache um, to allow them to do um, atomic deployments. Where basically they've doing something fooling around with Apache, telling it where to look for the document root, and that if a request starts, that when they do a deployment, they uh, have the they deploy it to a directory somewhere, and um, then they tell Apache to look where the document root is. So all existing um, requests stay in the same place, so that you don't get this problem where if you do a deployment halfway through a request, it reads some files in and reads some files from somewhere else as part of the request. That requests stay pointed at the correct directory root. He explained it in the talk. I, I mean, I found it very interesting, but. I don't know how many other people found it interesting, but that was one of the ways that I know that I know that Rasmus spends a lot of time thinking about deployments. I know we don't find it interesting now. <laughs> Dude, that's not nice, man. 
Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, um, I think it's really interesting that stuff that he that he talks about during his talks. Um, and I used I used to pay like a, a lot of really close attention to that, and I was kind of really pre-optimizing the way we would do things just to kind of do things the right way. And one of the things I've realized over time, and if if he ever hears this, I'm sure that we'll have a conversation about it sometime in the future. But um, is that I, I think it's at the scale that he's working at, it's really necessary. So he was working at Yahoo for a long time and now he's working at Etsy or with Etsy or I don't even know what their arrangement is. Um, but um, they're like huge scale compared to anyone else. Um, well, almost anyone else. Um, our scale with our biggest app, which is Gaming Bar, is nowhere, it's not in the, in the same league. Um, and so when we do deployments, I just don't worry about those things. I, I, I really don't care if like one one like page request gets messed up because we often don't do large enough changes that that matters or um, the one request where that, that happens to a user, it doesn't really affect the user's real experience any more, any more beyond that request. And it's just not worth the investment for us. Um, so I think that's worth considering as well. Yeah, where, I, th- I, th- uh, I, I think some of the good stuff is that some of the ideas that Rasmus promotes can trickle down mm-hmm. and get people thinking about them too. Because, I mean, he's talking about the example, you can't have things with money screwing up uh, in the middle yeah, of the request, right? You're trying, Somebody's trying to pay something or put something in their shopping cart. They have a certain level of, of expectation. And if you keep fucking that up every time you do a deploy, then pretty soon people are going to say the whole site is unstable and I don't trust them to keep stuff in my cart or I don't trust them to handle my transaction. Um, correctly and and sometimes those are legitimate um, beefs and sometimes they're not but perception uh, matters a ton I guess yeah I definitely agree um, I think I mean I guess kind of what I was saying is that I, we don't have enough I guess I, I guess we could probably go as far to say as we don't have enough traffic that, that like doing a deployment is going to statistically impact the middle of someone's page page loading where it's unlikely that when we do a deploy like that, it's actually going to affect someone because they're not reloading whole pages. They're often loading like pieces of the API and that kind of stuff. Um, so I definitely I absolutely agree that it's worth figuring out those things and having them trickle down into the way that everyone does deploys, but it's also not really necessary to safeguard those things at a, at a smaller scale or a much smaller scale. I I agree. I don't. I'm wondering how we. I shouldn't say we because I think that's a dumb thing to say for me. But how Cinecore, um does deployments because I'm not involved in those deployments in any way, shape, or form. Interesting to see how they fix that same problem. What they do to mitigate um, things changing in the middle of a request. So uh, so I think we've talked about deployments to death. Unless Ed wants to contribute something. Not really. Uh, I think the interesting thing, and maybe it kind of goes into something else, but. That I'll talk about later, but I think the interesting thing is that as I found myself like being at fictive kin and not thinking about um, ops very much because I don't worry about it at all, really. That I have less, I've more and more avoided that stuff and intentionally like don't want to mess around with with those kinds of things, and that's one of the reasons why when I I'm back on doing PHP work in the past few weeks, uh, I. It was excited about. I just started doing it using the build and development server instead of anything else because I didn't want to mess around with trying to actually set something up. It just didn't seem like it was worth the time, and uh, it's actually worked out really well. Yeah, I've played around with on some of the stuff I've been doing PHP five five stuff on with the development server, and uh, for, same thing for me. It's worked out quite well. I've been surprised at how easy it makes that. I mean, one little command you can even. Tell it, point at this document root, and, and uh, everything just works. It's pretty awesome. Um, I uh, was kind of messing around because I'm going to try to write a blog post on it, but 
uh, like I got just to test a couple things. Like everybody's going to ask, well, can you run WordPress on it? Was it that for a while? Like when when Microsoft Azure, like they first released their stuff, it was like, eh, does it run WordPress or something like that? There was that was a concern. But I don't know. I, I I don't know about that. But I said, well, I should probably see if like WordPress runs on it right out of the box, and it does. It runs fine. Um, I immediately I tried testing some uh, some plugin. Uh, and it immediately crashed. It didn't crash, but the plugin like output failed because it assumed that you were running on Apache. So it tried to use Apache functions to like de- like Apache specific functions to detect uh, things about the web server. So it was supposed to spit out a bunch of debugging information, and uh, and that just you know of course that crashed right away. But it didn't crash. It just stopped. But the point is uh, that it worked fine. Like um, WordPress thought that I wouldn't be able to rewrite any requests, but like you don't have to set up any rewrite handlers and stuff like that. It just magically seems to work, um, which is kind of awesome. And uh, I guess because it treats the index.php file as like a routing file. I don't know. I, I don't understand how it works. Which will probably I'll just avoid that topic in my blog post. But. Um, like why it works the way it does, but it just works out of the box. Like I was able to get, I was able to write, start writing a slim application on it really easily and not have to bother like, well, I'm going to have to set up my own like Nginx or Apache stuff or things like that. And what am I going to do with that? I just was able to avoid that question entirely and just start writing shit. And it was super easy to use. Um, it worked just as well or better than, um, I, I was kind of jealous because like, if I do say Python developer, node development or Ruby stuff, it always like, you know, when it has like preview modes where you can use a built in web server. And it really is, I think, advantageous to do that because it's one less thing that can go wrong when you're doing development. Like, you know, if you can remove the entirety of like a big fat web server application, uh, and all the possible things that could go wrong with that, if you remove that from the equation, that's one less thing you have to worry about until you actually do need to worry about it, which is when you're figuring out how to deploy it. Uh, so uh, I liked being able to just do development on that, and I, I was I was jealous of it being in other languages, and it's I think it's really helpful, and I think more people should try it. So I think one of the important things to consider with that stuff is that... Um, uh, well, two things. One is that the that WordPress plugin would have failed um, in our stack too because we don't use Apache. Yeah, it totally um, would have. And so, like, just writing writing that kind of thing is just a horrible idea. And it, I mean, it's it's a WordPress plugin, so it's kind of to be expected. Um, sorry, WordPress plugin developers, but your community is full of people who write all kinds of bad code. Um, but the other thing is that I think I think one thing that I guess a lot of PHP people don't know, especially, is that or maybe just aren't very familiar with, is that um, deploying other languages is not really at all like deploying PHP, where when you when a PHP request happens, all those files are read, and all those files are, are parsed and compiled, um, unless something is doing that for you with a cache. And then they're executed at runtime, um, and requests don't share anything with each other by, by default, unless something has been specifically set up to do that. Whereas with a Python application or with a Ruby application, you're running on a stack like G-Unicorn or Unicorn or USKey or whatever. Um, and you have an application that's running, and it runs when you start it. And um, it goes into effectively a loop, and the loop handles the requests. And so that's fundamentally different with how 
PHP handles things, and there are advantages to both of those, definitely. Um, but like as as one example of what might go differently when you're doing development is the the thing Ed's talking about is just it's basically a web server that reads PHP files off your disk whenever they're requested from from the local PHP web server. But with something like Flask, which is a Python um, like a really thin Python web framework, um, with Flask's built-in web server, um, that application is actually reloaded whenever it notices a change on disk. Um, and so your whole application runs every time you make a change. So there's definitely different things to consider when you're when you're thinking about like writing those things, but also deploying those things. It's very yeah. That's 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 very true. Shared nothing architecture is like PHP's big contribution to web architecture. I would guess um, the ability to horizontally scale really easily. But I know we're probably putting people to sleep thinking about deployment. So let's go into another ranty topic. <laughs> So something I get asked um, all the time, and again, I got into, I wouldn't call it an argument, but a discussion with um, somebody online was trying to create a website that was a repository of successful talk, like conference talk submissions and abstracts, with the goal of trying to shortcut the process of getting their own talks submitted by sort of like, let's... Let's, yeah, it's always an argument with me. Um, collect all the ones that worked, and therefore I can kind of mimic whatever these people are doing to create my own um, successful talk submission. Um, so <laughs> that should be the tagline, Sean. Actually, people can't see. I know this is just weird because I'm laughing at something that Sean um, t- typed into IRC. So, um, and I have people saying to me, wanting to be like, oh, Chris, you should write a blog post about conference stuff and how you get your talks accepted. Um, and so I think there are some actually really good parallels between how to get talks accepted and how to blog and, um, and how to create like books and other info products. And I think it comes down, I mean, I think it comes down, a successful talk, um, comes down to your ability to convince somebody else that you know enough about a topic to teach it. If you're not good at teaching people how to do things, then I would say your chances of getting a talk accepted without a personal favor or a well-placed bribe is like really, really low. Um, I admit that my own career probably started by accident to somebody taking a chance on me and saying, oh, let's see if this Chris guy can give a talk. And I put a lot of effort into um, trying to teach people things in my talks. And I think that with every passing conference that I submit to and I get accepted, to me that's even more proof that I actually know how to teach people things. And and whatever, uh, you know, I pick a topic, I learn that topic enough that I can then turn around and teach it to somebody else. Um, I mean, it's like writing the book stuff. It's the same thing. You find a problem that somebody has, you figure out this solution, and you teach people how to solve that problem. I, people seem to think there's some magical component to all the stuff that I do online, the teaching, the conference. It's there is no, it's there's no magic. It's a simple, pretty repeatable um, formula. I'm not. Uh, I know it sounds trite, but it's like it, it's really simple. There's simple steps you follow, and you just have to kind of 
you learn to convince people of things. And if you're not good at convincing people about things, then, um, yeah, you're not going to get to speak at conferences because people won't take a chance on you because they don't know whether you can teach anybody anything. I've seen some people that I would, that I thought would have given really good talks give absolutely terrible talks um, simply because... Was they, one of those people Ed? No, actually, Ed is no, yes. no, no, Ed, yes. no, 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 no. Come on, let's be honest. Ed is a very, Ed is a very, <laughs> I good, agree. I'm just Ed's a very good speaker, and he's always very um, entertaining, and his talks are are um, are always good. And I I try really hard not to miss a talk if I'm at the same conference. That is, Ed is, and even if I've seen that talk before, because Ed does it the right way, and he actually changes up the talk, and it's never the same thing twice. Um, but yeah, I've seen some people that I thought would have been good, and then they just fell down when they gave their talk because they really don't know how to teach people stuff. And um, I think in my case, if we want to throw some privilege around, it's probably there's a large component of this because my mother um, is a teacher and I'm sure that some of that stuff that she learned to do um, trickled down to me and I picked up on how to teach people and show people how to do things. I, I wish I could tell people there's some... You know the Grumpy Programmer's Guide to Getting Accepted at Conferences. There, it's it's so simple. Um, people seem unwilling to believe that it is that simple. Yeah. So I've organized conferences before, and um, I absolutely agree. I think I think um, I think as an organizer, you're often you're often in a position where you need to kind of hedge your bets to have a good experience for your attendees, and if if someone is submitting that you don't know at all in any way and you've never heard of like them giving a talk before and you don't know if they're able to um, speak in the language that the conference has delivered in a fluent way or um, really just be a good teacher, then it's, it's always a risk to do those things. Um, and sometimes it's, it's an awesome payoff, but it's, it's still a risk. And um, I was very often inclined to go with speakers that were successful with me in the past or with um, speakers who I knew were successful in other places in the past. And other places could be as simple as like someone gave a great talk at a user group last month. Um, And those are super easy to do. I mean, there's no like CFP for your local user group, I would hope. Um, And so I I would echo your advice, you know, just do it, you know, submit something that you think people will like and, and hopefully the organizers will see that and just keep trying and get as much experience as you can. Yeah, it, it often seems that what it takes to get into the conference circuit is just a little bit of luck to get some uh, conference to agree to allow you to speak, and then you make sure that you do a really good that you do a really good talk and you deliver a lot of value to make it so that people remember um, remember who you are, remember the topic, and um, and user groups, uh, as Paul has pointed out in the chat, are awesome for that as well. If there's a user group in your area, go there and give a talk, even if it's only ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Whatever. Whatever it's a great practice, and more it's about um, preparing mentally um, to give a talk. You quickly learn all the things that you need to do um, to prepare. I know there are some people who rehearse their talks endlessly. I know that Lorna Jane um, Mitchell, or she's Lorna Jane Bowman now. I think she took her husband's last name when she got married. Uh, I see her tweeting all the time about endlessly practicing um, her talks, and that's an approach that works good for her. I never practice my talks. Um, I rely on actually knowing the topic and actually knowing what my presentation looks like at a very high level that I can give a talk without a ton of practice and and do a good job. But again, this is what works for me. Um, But again, it's really, it's kind of the same thing that I learned in these product development courses. It's the same thing. 
you find a problem, you come up with a message that's the dream of how to fix this thing, and then you teach the solution. It's really, it's like a tripod of ideas. Problem, dream, solution. It's repeatable. Um, it makes you money. It lets you go to five to six or, or however many conferences a year that you feel like traveling to. I could probably go to a conference a month um, if I wanted to, uh, if I was willing to get divorced. I could go all over the place and uh, talk all the time. <laughs> Um, but I scale it. I scale, I've scaled well back on my conference, although this past couple of weeks was pretty rough. Ski PHP, then a trip to the offices, uh, of Cinecore in Buffalo, and then, and then going down to Miami for Sunshine PHP. But I'm not going anywhere else for talks until, um, tech in May. Um, and like Sean said too, like I'm, I'm on the other side of this too, having, um, uh, run a conference um, for two years. It's the same thing. Like I, I don't mind taking chances on speakers about people that I don't know. Um, people are giving a topic that I personally find interesting. I'm willing to take a chance on them. But at the end of the day, if the stakes get higher, if it's something larger than just a little small regional or a small community conference, um, uh, you might be reluctant to take chances on people that you don't know um, don't don't know whether they're going to deliver a good quality talk. I would like to think that I deliver good quality talks and that I keep getting um, accepted because I can deliver a good talk. But I'm sorry to tell people there is no there's no magic solution. It's just preparedness and and a willingness to teach people stuff. If if you find yourself having a hard time explaining things that you are enthusiastic about or things that you do in your day job to other people so they can repeat the things that you did, then you're probably not going to have a lot of success as a speaker. Um, one way you might be able to cheat, um, and I guess if everyone does this, it won't work, but um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're really interested in speaking at a conference and you um, um, don't have a lot of experience, but maybe you could show that you do have some experience, um, one way that you could probably increase the ability to get your talk accepted in the CFP phase, and that also depends on how that, the CFP runs, I guess, um, is just ask the organizers, you know, like, hey, what, what, what kind of topics are you guys looking for that no one has submitted yet? Um, and if you are competent to speak on those things, then there's a high likelihood that someone is going to accept that talk. I mean, when I was when I was doing this stuff, there would be technologies that were what we considered hot, um, and technologies that people expected, um, kind of like expected to come to the conference to learn about. But if no one submitted on non-relational databases, then it's totally worth someone who has a little bit of experience in that to you know flesh that out and learn how to do, give a good talk on that and get accepted at the, at the conference because when I was doing it especially we have a list of like a hit list of like we definitely need to talk on MySQL this year we definitely need to talk on um, like web security there absolutely needs to be one maybe even a tutorial on that stuff and if we didn't have any then we would start asking people to do them and if someone would have given them to us without having to go ask people then like all the better. I uh, I think one of the things that's kind of interesting to me is that I think it varies a little bit. I mean, it's a little off this topic, but it's kind of related. I think it varies a little bit from community to community, too. And I think the stuff that I think people in the PHP community, um, because so many of those, uh, so many of these conferences are um, pay for conferences and they... Uh, well, significantly pay for, let's say, as opposed to like $20 to get in or something like that. And that they typically cover, um, they cover travel and lodging for speakers and things like that, that that becomes a much more, uh, 
risk-averse notion than it would be to at your like you know a lot of it seems like a lot of Python conferences are or are, are essentially all volunteer run and are not at all trying to make money like at, they're just bare, they're just trying to put on the conference at all and they don't provide any support for speakers or things like that and uh, I wonder if that's where um, I suppose that some of the appeal of going to PHP conferences is that you know you don't have to pay your own way it becomes a lot less interesting I think if you you know can't you, you have to do that but also the fact that most of them are uh, are, are, are somewhat for profit. And I think that makes a difference in the kinds of things that they're willing to accept. I mean, I wouldn't, I, it's just, you know, a matter of fact that you're just going to be a lot more averse to, you know, taking a risk on something you don't know if it's a good, you're going to be a good slot or not. You're going to have a lot less of those, I think. I think one other last thing that I want to throw in this is that um, I think people should probably not be discouraged if their, if their talk is not accepted. There, there are a lot of reasons for not accepting talks, and they're almost always related to um, just not having enough slots to accept all the talks that you want to accept. Um, we used to get, um, I remember one year, I think we got 10 times as many talks as we could fit into our schedule um, in the CFP. And it was really it was really frustrating for us as organizers to have to turn people away that we thought would give awesome talks because we just didn't have room for it. Um, and we weren't the size of conference where we could run 8, 10 um, tracks we, we would do. I think we did 2 and 3, maybe 4 or 5 months, but... Um, like it was generally a three-track conference that we were running, and there's a lot of things that go into that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like I was saying, um, you know, talks that you expect that your that you think your att attendees are expecting to see um, often get priority over maybe even a talk that you think is really awesome, but maybe the attendees didn't really appreciate it the last year, the last time it was given. Um, that kind of stuff, but also things like budget, where. Um, when we were in Chicago, it was, it was very, very expensive for us to bring in people from Europe. Um, and if we had speakers who were coming in from Europe in order to fit our budget, we'd have to have them give two or three talks. Um, you couldn't just fly someone in and put them up for the week to give one talk and still make your budget if you were doing that in five or six places. And so we would have people who gave, who would give a talk that, um, our attendees were really expecting to hear and that we knew we would go over with attendees and we would ask them to give a second or third talk just to kind of help out with budget. So, um, you definitely should if you if you submit a talk that doesn't get accepted, um, maybe you should review that and take a look and say, you know, maybe I could make this talk better. Or I could I could submit it in a different way next time. But it's I often had people come to me and say, hey, what's wrong? What's wrong with the talk I submitted? And it was it was you know sad to tell people like honestly, there's nothing wrong with it. We just didn't have room for it, and I'm sorry. Yeah, I've given lots of feedback to people um, on their talks and explained certain types of things, too. It's like, you know, we only have so many slots available for um, European speakers, or there were there was somebody else uh, giving, uh, somebody else who's a little bit more well-known, um, giving a talk on the same topic. So, uh, again, I know I used to take it probably a little bit too personal about talks being submitted. I finally got over that a while ago um it can be difficult it does feel like you're being personally rejected like it's when it's really it's uh, in very few cases it's actually being rejected because of the person most of the time it's just rejected for like what sean said you, too many talks not enough slots and um you just can't you just you can't accommodate everybody and and i am i'm positive that uh, even for a conference like true north php which isn't that big um three tracks over two days i'm sure there's some awesome talks that just slipped through the cracks because it was um because of, you know just it was a numbers game 
numbers game. And Ed's making fun of me again in chat too. Dude, this might be the last one if you keep doing that. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah, uh, stuff. Hey, were we going to talk about like how to find a mentor? Yes, that was item number three on our list here, mentoring. Because um, some people are asking me about this too on Twitter um, because I'm involved in the PHP mentoring. Although I haven't done it for a while because... Um, I kind of, I initially had taken a set of three people on uh, to mentor them on testing stuff, and I've helped them all up their games to the point where now uh, Matt, who's in the channel, and Jeff Carruth are now speaking on testing topics at conferences, which I think is a very awesome thing and showing that mentoring is a uh, mentoring is a great way um, for people that know something to give back to the community because. As people that use open source technology, oftentimes you don't actually have the ability to contribute back to the language or tools that you're actually using all the time. You, you know, you you don't have the time, or um, you don't have the necessary technical skill. Like for me to like contribute something to PHP itself, uh, my C and C plus plus skills are non-existent, so I can never contribute that way. Um, but. Uh, uh, now I'm getting distracted by reading the channel. Let me close that so I don't have to see it. Um, uh, men- mentoring is um, uh, mentoring is a good is a good thing. It, it's it, it it harkens back to the idea of apprenticeships, right? Which is something that has basically kind of disappeared for the most part from from working culture. I mean, there was a time when you know getting uh, jobs that's the way they were done. You you had people who were experts, and then they would bring on apprentices, and they would teach them. And at some point, they would know enough that they could then go off and do whatever the job was that they had been apprenticing. Um, go off and then turn go off and work as, on their own, and eventually start teaching other people the same thing. Um, I know that probably a lot of like informal mentoring goes on, and you could even count. Um, conference talks as kind of um, ad hoc mentoring and the conversations that you have with people after um, after talks is sort of informal mentoring but I, I really think that like formal mentoring um, is a good thing when I was doing it I was meeting usually once a week or every other week with people and we would just talk about anything we would sometimes it would actually be about the topics um, that we were uh, agreed to talk about but sometimes it would just be personal things and just stuff not related to programming or programming but um, from a different approach and um, I found those things helpful for me as well and I know people asking how do you find a mentor well I mean for PHP you could go if into IRC, into the PHP mentoring channel and start asking. Um, I know that sometimes it also takes a leap of faith to find someone to screw up the courage to like approach somebody that you don't know and say, Hey, I see that, you know, you're kind of good at X, Y, Z. Um, I would like to learn more about that. Can we establish this as some sort of like on a regular basis, you, you know, we talk about these things. And I, I think that, I think that last barrier of approaching somebody that you don't know, um, can be very off-putting to some. Um, luckily, um, I was more than happy to take on a couple of people and talk to them on a regular basis about this sort of stuff. So for me, again, as part of the teaching stuff, um, I found that very easy to do. Maybe, could we call it maybe like a Big Brother program? And um, they, they, we, they'd call them Littles? <laughs> call the apprentices Littles? <laughs> I don't know where you're going with that, Ed. I don't know. It just seems like a good idea, don't you think? Big brother, little brother type thing. Um, 
Or sister. You don't have to be like that. Big sister or little mm-hmm. sister. Um, I have a big sister. So, well, Are you the little then? Uh, well, I'm the youngest if you want to put it that way, yeah. Okay, so you're the little. Okay, yeah. all right. Which is odd given how physically large I actually am, but that's... No, nobody knows you're the youngest on the internet, I guess. So you're say, so basically, you were the big brother, and Matt was the little, but he's not a little anymore. Is what you're no, saying? No, no, Matt. Uh, Matt, I pushed Matt out of the nest, and he can fly on his own now. Sean, have you ever done uh, even to any extent formalized mentoring? Um, I don't really, I don't really know formalized, but I've definitely been in places where I'm kind of like the more senior of people. Um, and we hire some junior people that like learn from the whole team, but also from me directly. Um, so the, I guess it's probably different at like a work situation. Um, I've had some people who've like asked to kind of like learn from some of the stuff I'm doing, which is cool. Um, and I, I don't, I was trying to think of how to say this in a way that doesn't sound cocky when I was, when you, when you were talking, but I mean this in a really nice way. And that's, what I, what I want to say is that the people that you're learning from, the people that are mentoring you are probably really busy and probably have a lot of stuff to do. And I think it's important to kind of be gracious of those things and, and be thankful and actually like really listen to what those people are saying and kind of take it to heart. And I, I, again, I don't, I don't mean for that to sound nearly as bad as it sounds in my head right now, but what I mean is that if you're going to get the most out of it and if they're going to want to continue doing that to you and, and or for you and helping you, then like you, you really kind of need to go out of your way to really be a good learner and be a good mentee. Is that a word? No, that, that would be the word. I think manatee is the word you're looking for. Yes, manatee. Oh, humanity. <laughs> Such humanity. Yep. Um, but yeah, you know, be, be a good learner and, and um, be conscious that, that, the people that you're learning from are um, are giving you some of their time, and um, that's that has value, and it has value to them to teach you as well. Like I, I've definitely learned things from teaching people stuff. Um, I don't mean it for it to sound like that at all, but just if you're a, if you're like an intern or a, a mentee of any sort, you know, just be be conscious of that. I think it's important. Um, and one of the things I thought that maybe we ought to mention is there's a there's that PHP mentoring website. It's right. phpmentoring.org, I think and, it is. Yep, and um, I hang out online during the day in the PHP mentoring um, channel on Freenode. And uh, although it, ha- it does devolve into non-PHP mentoring topics many, many times, but that is probably um, the best point of contact because I think most of the people that participate in that hang out in that channel. So I, I, again, maybe it's a bit of a self-selecting group, people comfortable um, idling in a text-based chat system. Um, and you have to kind of be conscious that there may be some people that um, aren't into that. I do know of, of my three um, apprentices that I had taken on. Um, Matt Matt didn't always hang on in IRC. Um, Jeff Carruth, who I helped out, um, Definitely does. And then Jake McGraw, who's a gentleman who was working for a startup in New York City, who has worked his way up um, to be the CTO there. He was definitely not an IRC person, but I found out from him because I basically said, I will mentor um, three people, um, first three to say so on Twitter. Um, you know, we'll, 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 uh, we'll set something up. 
is he related to Tug McGraw? No, I do not believe so, but I will ask him. I'm supposed to speak to him tomorrow about some super secret project I want to do for him. Uh, I'll, ask yeah. him I'll ask him if he knows Tug. Yeah, if you could get him to sign a mitt for me, I'd appreciate that. Maybe he can sign a ball for you. Yeah, or two. Of course, people don't here don't know who Tug McGraw is, I bet. I bet someone very old does. <laughs> and that somebody very old would be both of us, Ed. I'm kind of old. I don't know who that is. Uh, well, <laughs> is it a sports ball thing? Yeah, yeah. It, is, yeah it is a sports mm, ball thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I only know about sports puck things. Yeah, sports oh, puck. Right. Yeah. He was an American baseball player uh, for the Phillies. He was a pitcher for the Phillies. And for the Mets. Did he? I only pay attention during the Phillies situation. He was. He was uh, we're going to digress into sports ball for a minute. He played. He was on the the nineteen sixty nine Mets. You know the one, the amazing Mets that won out of nowhere. He was on that team. Oh, I did not know that. Along well, with but... Tom, along with Tom Seaver and Nolan Ryan, was on that team too. Damn, that's yeah. a pretty good lineup. It was a very good team. That's why they won. Um, and Matt Frost, of course, being a baseball fan, he knows who Tom McGraw is as well. Um, but mentoring, like, uh, I, I think. Um, I think establishing like a routine for the mentor, mentee, or manatee, or apprentice, whatever you want to call them, establishing that as a regular um, routine um, is the key to getting good quality results. If you can agree, set aside some time every week or every two weeks to meet and talk about stuff, um, that works so much better than just kind of stumbling around trying to find time to do something. It's almost like for the podcast, I start thinking maybe Ed and I should just start making plans every two weeks on a Sunday we're going to do it or whatever, um, get together and record just so that we're not just end up after a couple months going, oh, shit, we haven't done one of these for a while, have we? Um, that routine helps everybody involved, I think. And also, as, as Sean pointed out, yeah, sometimes the people that do these things are super busy and it's good to be cognizant of that. But I found for me just trying to keep my life um, organized is uh, um, through calendar. I, I became a calendar fiend a couple of years ago. It's, I thought it was the only way to keep my life straight and find time to do all the stuff that I wanted to do. A little glimpse into the chaos that is my life. Do you, uh, Have you studied Six Sigma or anything like that? No, I don't believe in that bullshit. Yep. Well, just, but you have like a Franklin Covey calendar or something like that. No, I I use I use uh, the calendar on my iPhone. I plan my life a week at a time usually, and I see um, on Wednesdays I'm going to go and play Magic, and then this Thursday I'm going to go play online once everyone's gone to bed, and then on Sunday night I'm going to do a recording, or Tuesday night I'm going to read my cookbook, and just my plan. I try to plan my life so I know at all times what I'm doing. It gets worse once. Um, Baseball season starts up and I'm playing and I have to take my daughter to her practices for softball. Um, my calendar is like almost every single day it has a dot on it because I'm doing something and I can't keep my life straight without tracking that stuff. Man, families, right? Yeah, it's by choice, you know. No one, these, these things don't happen by accident. It's all conscious decision. Sometimes it happens by accident. Well, yeah, ha- have you done a test or... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I unit test my schedule a week at a time. Um, that wasn't the test I was talking about. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know paternity test. Um, no, my, ki- my, my, my kids are assholes. They're clearly mine. <laughs> um, oh, I was... Okay, so we're, we're going on like a, almost an hour here, but I wanted to talk for a minute about... Uh, like, uh, we kind of touched on a little bit, but I think that... And I think that... The, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about how I think that Composer is impacting the quality of PHP stuff that's coming out, 
and how I think it's making development a lot better in PHP. Um, I think that, and Sean, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this too, because I think that, uh, uh, you know, at Fictive Kin, we sort of made a conscious decision that we weren't going to use PHP as our primary platform anymore. And I know that some of the frustrations that I had, had it really had to do with, had, with two things. One, it was the quality of code that you could find and how easy it was to find. Um, it was, I spent lots of time, like, uh, you know, you'd hunt around on websites and try to find, you know, uh, code that was zipped up in zip files and download those and jam it into your, uh, into your project and things like that. And I think when I compared that to the experience of working with something like, say, uh, like Node development or with Python development, um, and both of which have, well, no, I mean, Python has a couple different, a few different package managers, but I guess the main one that we use is pip. And, um, and Node has its NPM package manager, which is the only one that I know of. Uh, and Ruby has gems, but I don't really like to use that Ruby. Uh, so that's always been really kind of frustrating uh, when I when I would use some of that stuff and then I'd go back into PHP and I found it just enormously a pain in the ass to find stuff that was like high quality uh, libraries that you could just pull into your project and use and I, I, I just always found that really frustrating and my experiences from stepping away from stuff and then coming back I don't know what two years later uh, or three years later that um, I think that Composer and the way that it works has it seems like it's encouraging people to write better um, components of software that are uh, in, that are you can use with um, lots of different things that they're not. It's not framework specific. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and then the other thing is that I think they're just encouraging you to write better stuff because the idea being that if you write something that's a solid library and that has say like tests for it and a test suite and junk like that. Uh, that then it's more likely that people are going to use it, and I and and so uh, it, I feel like Composer's done a lot for. I really think that if you don't have something like Composer, I don't think that happens in PHP, and I think that it's really Composer that's facilitating that. So I think it's interesting, but my it, 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 my impression is. Uh, touching stuff PHP in the last like six months, <laughs> uh, messing with it again a lot more, uh, that it is a lot better than it was, say, three years ago. And I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what you guys thought about that. I, I have said repeatedly that Composer really represents a definite, like a you can look back and say this is at the this is the point where PHP became so much more useful again, um, just simply because there was there was no way to easily um, share and integrate third party um, libraries into your application. The fact that Com- Compose lets you do this, I think the the hidden uh, magic is that it writes the autoloader for you. Composer figures out how to write the autoloader for you, so you just include the autoloader, and then all these cool packages you've pulled in are instantly available to you. Um, it handles namespaces and all that stuff. Um, I, I don't think you can underestimate the impact that Composer um, has has and will continue to have on PHP. Yeah, I dig you. I don't know. What do you think, Sean? Um, so, I think you're 
very right about why we made that decision. Um, and there, there were a lot of factors in, in why we kind of moved away from PHP. Um, part of that was internal expertise, um, but definitely part of it was that we had got a taste of um, using other people's code in Python and how it was not a horrible disaster. Um, and that was definitely not the case in PHP two years ago, um, maybe a little over two years ago. Um where there were definitely some good PHP libraries and some good PHP frameworks, and there were definitely some people that knew how to write PHP um, then and knew how to distribute their code and were actually able to do so. But for the most part, it was awful. Um, and I say that as someone who's definitely distributed awful code. Um, I contributed to, I mean, um, before Composer, there was Pair, <laughs> and I was a definite Pair contributor for a long time, and there's a lot of stuff in pair that's terrible and it was, it was flooded by bureaucracy and it was just a huge, it was a huge headache to distribute anything with pair. Um, and the first time I got a taste of something that wasn't that was with NPM where I wrote this probably terrible JavaScript library, um, with Evan and, um, ended up just putting it on NPM and it, and, and NPM and it was like a five minute job. I didn't have to go through any sort of like elections or community like governance or anything like that. I just put up code and people could use it if they wanted to. Um, and I think Composer is a little bit like that with the channels and, and the um, packages. Is that what it's called? Yes. Ed? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I feel like that I don't have a lot of experience with that recently, um, but I feel like that is a much better um, kind of ecosystem for that code where now, like even this week I asked Ed about something, um, <laughs> web shell, <laughs> that's unfortunate. That code definitely doesn't work anymore. It just went into our show notes. That's why, that's why I noticed it. Whoops. Um, uh, but yeah, even this week I asked Ed about a couple things and you know, I said, do we have a good solution for, um, managing database migrations in PHP? And he said, well, I'm not really sure, but let's look around and package us. And I was just like, are you sure that's a good idea? Like, are, are you sure we can just go take someone else's library and that's not going to be a huge disaster in two weeks? Um, and um, just in what like, he found in a few minutes and just showed me, and I was just like, you know what? I'm, I'm comfortable with going with this stuff. It doesn't seem like the, the mess it was a couple of years ago. So it seems, seems like it's way, way better. Yeah, I was looking for just, I think this weekend I was thinking about geocoding stuff because that's something that we're working on for this project that's, that's PHP-based. That's going to be a little part of it. And uh, I found like three or four things in packages that would do it. And I was able to pick from that and say, okay, which one of these have like test suites and which one of these seem like they're getting updated a lot and stuff like that. But there were actually two or three different options that I could have got, and, and it, like they were pretty good. Like they had actually put time into documenting stuff they had actually, you know, written a, 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 at least some kind of test suite. Uh, it seemed like it was, you know, it, it, you could just tell that there's sort of like more effort being put into that. And I'm, I'm, I, I, I just really feel like that ability to discover, li- to easily publish and easily discover uh, libraries, uh, just that facilitates that. And if you don't have that, then if you put a, it's, it's a lot, you're a lot less interested in putting that effort in because you're just a lot, a lot fewer people are going to see it. I think. Composer and packagist is the bomb. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So I guess PHP is okay again. <laughs> it's okay. It's funny. Our very first episode all came about because we were sick of PHP and 
Despite all our best efforts, people keep trying to make it better and usable. I guess. I, I yeah, and you know what? I'm actually really like the stuff that's come in the new language releases. I think have been really exciting. I'm genuinely excited about variadic functions in PHP five six. Because those things remind me of the keyword argument stuff, like you see in Python, the star star kwargs and the stuff like that. I look at those and I think that's kind of similar. That those are those are kind of like variadic. Um, parameters, aren't they? Sort of? Yes? No? Yeah, if you look in the RFC for the variadic function stuff, uh, they in fact reference, like, well, we could do it like this, or we could do it like this, or we could do it like Python, or we could do it like how these different things uh, work, and the the RFC basically says, well, we don't want to do it because it would look kind of messier if this and all that, but they ended up going with, I guess the approach that they're using is the same one that's used in Java and I think one other language that I, like, if I look it up, right, RFC uh, variadic functions. Keep talking while I find this. Um, but But yeah, it is similar and that's why it's interesting because I was running into it where it becomes a big pain to not have um, having named parameters is really, really nice for a lot of stuff. And it lets you pass a lot of things into a single method that otherwise in PHP, I think what you end up doing is you have like instead of just passing everything into like a single constructor or a single method or something like that, what you'll do is you'll have a bunch of like setter sort of functions that you set a bunch of states for things. And then you say, okay, go ahead and execute now with like, so you have to, you know, is it an enormous deal? No, it's just, it, it just, that's a way, a way that the, that having a feature and not having a feature influences the way that you design your interfaces. Right. And I think that that is, uh, I think that that's one thing where it was a little bit frustrating and it becomes a lot more interesting. It's interesting. There's 36 people voted for variadic functions and one person voted against it. I wonder why this one person didn't like it. It's weird. Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah, probably. Oh, uh, the pro syntax is also used by Java and will be used in JavaScript. uh, The ECMAScript harmony proposal, which And then Go and C++ employ similar syntax. So where it's like a dot, 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 and then you have a, a variable name that I guess gets populated as a, a as a, a hash of keyword, you know, key-to-value pairs, right? So I there, think... Yeah, it, very, it strikes me as, with my limited exposure to Python, very, very similar to how it does the keyword arguments things. But so, Yeah, yep. and it's not quite the same as name parameters in Python, and I kind of wish it we had name parameters in PHP, but we don't. So it's, but it's still better than um, I think not having anything like that. And at least now PHP actually has the RFC process where people can actually submit ideas for the language, and people will actually vote on instead of just how it was even I don't know even less than a year ago, just so many good ideas just summarily, some summarily dismissed. Samaria it's been like that for, for some, quite a while. I'd yeah. say probably like three or four years. Has it been that long? Oh, well, maybe maybe even longer than that. Well, yeah. I, I I never ever ever wade wade into the internal mailing list, so I have no idea. I stay away from that for, for my own sanity because I'm like I couldn't do anything to influence any of this shit anyway. So what's the point? Well, there's so many other things I can get outraged about. That's way low on the list. Yeah, I don't pay any attention to these until they actually get passed. 
because it'll just frustrate me. But uh, the RFC has been that way for three or four years, and for what it's worth, the last three or four years, it seems like we've been seeing a lot more halfway decent language features going in. So, yeah, I've been happy with it, relatively. That's bold praise, Ed. I know, I'm really putting myself out there. You've been relatively happy. <laughs> well, what do you think, Ed? you think we're done? We've been talking long enough, I think. Yeah, probably. It's it, we've been a little over an hour, so I think it's probably a good time. So to we've reached it. we've reached the end. This has been episode number forty of the Development Hell Podcast. Uh, thanks to our special guest Sean Coates for inviting himself on. Thanks for coming on, Sean. It was awesome. Yeah, sure, it was fun. My always, pleasure. Always good to talk to you, and hopefully, I can convince you and the crew to come back to True North again. Maybe I'll have to make Joel give a keynote or something. Uh, <laughs> you can you can he talk about the city. Uh, yeah, well, he talked. He, 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 well, he, he lives in Toronto, which is he, not really the same city. He can he can talk about uh, how he can like deadlift a uh, thousand pounds now. Maybe he can give us a demonstration during the keynote. And uh, so you can find us uh, online uh, at. Uh, Okay, I always, cause I always mess this up. DevHell.info is a website where you can find every single episode, except for number 39, which is in the can, but hasn't been edited by Ed. Um, show notes for every single episode. You can listen to them, uh, you can listen to them right, uh, via the webpage. Um, you can also find us via iTunes. If you listen to us via iTunes, please, 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 um, rate it and give us some feedback so Ed and I can, uh, learn what works and what doesn't work. Um, although, Chances are we'll probably ignore what doesn't work because we're just going to do our own thing, yo. And uh, you can always find us during when we're doing stuff. You can find us on Freenode whenever we're recording in the DevHell channel. And consequently, uh, special thanks to uh, Paul Reinheimer and Will Roberts from the uh, Wonder Network for generously donating bandwidth so that we could uh, stream the stream things out via IceCast. Uh, you know, Ed, maybe one day you should talk a little bit how we set up IceCast to do it. Um, maybe that's of interest to some people. Um, you can find us uh, at dev underscore hell on Twitter. You can find me, Grumpy Programmer without the U on Twitter. You can find Ed as Funkotron with the U. Uh, as always, thanks uh, so much for joining us, and hopefully we won't have such a big, um, long gap between shows next time. So, good night, Internet. Good night, everybody. Goodbye.